Our scripture reading this evening comes from the book of Job, chapter 40 and 41. Chapter 40 and 41. I think this is our sixth sermon in this series on the book of Job, which seems wild uh, because we're at chapter 40 and we've only done six sermons. Um, but yeah, this is, this is the continuation of God's uh, divine speech to Job. <clears throat> Job 40 and 41 And as we approach God's word, let's come before him in prayer. O Lord our God, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for the story of your servant Job, who experienced terrible suffering, and through his protest and his cry to you, teaches us about your justice and your goodness and your faithfulness. Lord, in this book, we are confronted with uh, difficult and frustrating questions, questions that cut to the very core of who we are and cut to the very foundation of what we believe about who you are. And Lord, we pray that as we read your speech to Job this evening, that you would send your Holy Spirit to dwell among us, to open our ears, to open our eyes, to open our minds, and to open our hearts to everything that it is that you would have us hear and see and know and believe. We pray all this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, the Word of God. Amen. Job 40 and 41. The Lord said to Job, will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. Then Job answered the Lord, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you will answer me. Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? Do you have an arm like God's? Can your voice thunder like his? Then adorn yourself with glory and splendor. Clothe yourself with honor and majesty. Unleash the fury of your wrath. Look at every proud man and bring him low. Look at every proud man and humble him. Crush the wicked where they stand. Bury them all in the dust together. Shroud their faces in the grave. Then I myself will admit to you that your own right hand can save you. Look at the behemoth which I made along with you, which feeds on grass like an ox. What strength he has in his loins, what power in the muscles of his belly. 
His tail sways like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are close-knit. His bones are tubes of bronze. His limbs like rods of iron. He ranks first among the works of God. Yet his maker can approach him with a sword. The hills bring him their produce, and all the wild animals play nearby. Under the lotus plants he lies, hidden among the reeds and the marsh. The lotuses conceal him in their shadow, the poplars by the streams surrounding him. When the river rages, he is not alarmed. He is secure, though the Jordan should surge against his mouth. Can anyone capture him by the eyes or trap him? And pierce his nose. Can you pull in the Leviathan with a fish hook or tie down his tongue with a rope? Can you put a cord through his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he keep begging you for mercy? Will he speak to you with gentle words? Will he make an agreement with you for you to take him as your slave for life? Can you make a pet of him like a bird to put him on a leash for your girls? Will traders barter for him? Will they divide him up among the merchants? Can you fill his hide with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? If you lay a hand on him, you will remember the struggle and never do it again. Any hope of subduing him is false. The mere sight of him is overpowering. No one is fierce enough to rouse him. Who then is able to stand against me? Who has a claim against me that I must pay? Everything under heaven belongs to me. I will not fail to speak of his limbs, his strength, and his graceful form. Who can strip off his outer coat? Who would approach him with a bridle? Who dares open the doors of his mouth, ringed about with fearsome teeth? His back has rows of shields tightly sealed together. Each is so close to the next that no air can pass between them. They are joined fast to one another. They cling together and cannot be parted. His snorting throws out flashes of light. His eyes are like the rays of the dawn. Firebrands stream from his mouth. Sparks of fire shoot out. Smoke pours from his nostrils and from a boiling pot over a fire of reeds. His breath sets coals ablaze and flames dart from his mouth. Strength resides in his neck. Dismay goes before him. The folds of his flesh are tightly joined. They are firm and immovable. His chest is hard as rock, hard as a lower millstone. When he rises up, the mighty are terrified. They retreat before his thrashing. The sword that reaches him has no effect, nor does the spear or the dart or the javelin. Iron he treats like straw and bronze like rotten wood. Arrows do not make him flee. Slingstones are like chaff to him. A club seems to him but a piece of straw. He laughs at the rattling of the lance. His undersides are jagged potsherds, leaving a trail in the mud like a threshing sledge. He makes the depths churn like a boiling cauldron and stirs up the sea like a pot of ointment. Behind him he leaves a glistening wake. One would think the deep had white hair. Nothing on earth is his equal, a creature without fear. He looks down on all that are haughty 
He is king over all that are proud. This is the word of the Lord. Sisters and brothers in our Lord Jesus Christ, we've come a long way in this journey with our friend Job. Across the space of now six sermons, we've walked with Job all the way from his initial tragedy to the silence of Job chapter 2, to the darkness of Job chapter 3, to the empty courtroom of Job 19 and 23. We've walked with Job as he's mourned the loss of his children, as he sat in silence, as he cursed the day of his birth, as he shook his fist at God, asking, how could you do this to me? We've walked with Job as his friends sat with him in silence, but were not able to sit with him in his protest. We've walked with Job step by step, plank by plank, as he built this courtroom for his trial of God. We've listened as he built the foundations, as he measured its walls, as he shingled its roof. We've listened as Job built his argument and established the ground rules of justice. We've sat with him in his big, dark, empty courtroom, waiting for God to answer his cry for justice. And last week, we stood with Job in the whirlwind as God finally, after all this time, gives Job an answer. But it's not the answer we might have expected. Definitely not the answer Job expected. Job has asked God, where were you when all of this happened to me? And God's response was, where were you when I laid the earth's foundations. Job questions whether God was able to prevent this evil from happening to him, and God's response is to ask Job whether he is able to make the sun rise over the edge of the earth. Job wonders why God is absent from him, and God asks Job why he is absent from the depths of the ocean, from the edges of the earth. Job wonders why God doesn't just loose his life and let him die, and God's response is to ask Job if he can loosen Orion's belt and move the Big Dipper. Not the answers we expect. Last Sunday, we saw that God is awesome. God is the one who spoke creation into being, who separated light from darkness, who set the boundaries of the sea and cast the stars into their place. He is the one who created every living creature and continues to care for them. As we saw, not even the labor pains of a doe giving birth in the woods escape God's notice. God provides food and shelter for all creatures on the earth, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, every living thing that moves along the ground, God has made them. 
God rules over them. God cares for them. God knows them. The clay of the earth, the darkness of space, the depths of the sea, the light of the sun, the rocks of the mountains, the heat of the fire, all of these things are creations of the Lord Almighty who rules over them with justice and with grace. And Job realizes that the courtroom that he has spent the last 30 chapters building is way, way too small. At the beginning of our reading tonight, God says to Job, will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. And Job responds, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. Job realizes here that this is way bigger than he ever imagined. And he realizes that he has nothing to say. He, he has no answer for God's awesomeness, for God's bigness, for God's greatness. And so, in humility, he puts his hand over his mouth and refuses to speak. And in a lot of ways, we kind of expect things to end there. God has won. Job set out to put God on trial. Job demanded that God come and do justice, and God has won. Job's courtroom could not fit God, and so God wins. Job declares his silence. In a lot of ways, Job gives up here in chapter 40. God shows up and reveals the whole creation to Job. And says, what do you have to say to that? Huh? What do you have to say that to that, Job? And Job says, I have nothing to say. Job is done. Who can argue with a storm? But God's not done. God just keeps going. And at first, it seems like, like God is just kind of being mean. God starts out in this passage the same way he started out his last speech. Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you will answer me. Oh no, Job, you can't give up now because I'm not done. Brace yourself because we're going to go a few more rounds and I want a better show from you this time around. I expect a different response when this is all over. And it just seems kind of mean. I mean, Job has given up. Job has said, I don't want to fight anymore. I'm not, I'm not up to this challenge. I can't fight you, so I give up. I thought I could go toe-to-toe -to -toe with you, but I was clearly wrong. I thought I could stand up to you like a man, but you've knocked the wind out of me, and I have no words. I'm done. I give up. I'm done. And it seems like God just wants to, to, to beat the living daylights out of him. 
just to humiliate him so much, almost like, like God is trying to make an example of him. Like, like, like whenever anyone else complains about how God isn't being fair to them, they'll just remember Job and they'll just keep their mouths shut. Because if you don't, God is going to beat you into the dust like he did with Job. He's just going to humiliate you. Because God always wins. But the thing is, that God's not really out to win. God's not worried about winning. God's not trying to beat Job. God is trying to give Job what Job needs to make sense of all of this. And Job doesn't even realize that that's what he needs. And that's why after the first speech, Job isn't ready to respond in the way that God is waiting for him to respond. Job doesn't see what it is that he needs. And that's why God isn't done. God isn't done not because he has to beat Job up more, not because he has to tear Job down, down a few more notches. God isn't done because Job is broken. Job's whole life has been torn to pieces, and out of the rubble, out of the pieces, out of the debris of that life that Job has left, he built a courtroom. And God has just shown up and like knocked over his courtroom because he didn't notice it. Like it was so small that God just like accidentally stepped on it. And so like even the little, even the courtroom that Job has built out of the rubble of his life has just been smashed. God doesn't fit in Job's courtroom. And so now Job's courtroom is broken too. And when Job gives up here in chapter 40, God sees that Job isn't giving up because he recognizes God's faithfulness. Job isn't giving up because he sees, oh yes, God, you are just. Job is giving up because he's lost hope. His life is in ruins. His courthouse is smashed. His questions turned out not even to be the right questions. He wanted God to explain to him why this happened to him. And instead, God shows up talking about the sun and the moon and the stars and the ocean and the mountains and the wild animals. And Job is just done. Job has lost his interest in this conversation with God. And God sees this and he's like, oh no, we are not done. This is not where things end. Because I didn't smash your courtroom out of spite. I didn't smash your courtroom to show you how small you were. I smashed your courtroom so that we could build a bigger one together. So let me help you reframe your perspective. Let me help you build a new narrative that makes sense of the big picture. Let me help you lay the foundations for a room that will help you begin to make sense of everything that has happened.
let me help you build a courtroom that can fit God's justice. And this is the whole point of the book of Job, this question of justice. In the Hebrew, it's this word mishpat. Mishpat. Everybody say that. Mishpat. Mishpat. Yeah, you got it. And mishpat is like one of the most important theological concepts in the Hebrew Bible. It's probably as important as the word shalom, which some of you might have heard. Shalom, is that head nods? Yeah, head nods? I see some head nods. Shalom is like this sense of, of peace and fullness and rest and, and, and flourishing. And these two words together, mishpat and shalom, are the words that are most often used to describe the kingdom of God, to describe the kind of goal that God has set for all of creation. The kingdom of God in Isaiah and in other books of the Old Testament, the kingdom of God is a kingdom of justice and a kingdom of peace, a kingdom of mishpat and a kingdom of shalom. The kingdom that God is building on the earth is a kingdom of justice and a kingdom of peace, a kingdom where everything is right and everything is flourishing. And what Job has done, God says, is to question his mishpat, to question his justice. Job has questioned whether God is really just. And as a result, what, jo what has happened is that Job has lost faith in the goodness of creation itself. Job never goes so far as to question the goodness of God, Job never goes so far as to curse God as evil. But Job starts out this whole conversation by cursing the day of his birth. Cursing the day that God created. Cursing the day that God created. The day that he was brought to life. The day that he was brought into this world. Job no longer believes that the creation is good. Maybe God is good. Maybe everything that God does is good. But, even if that's true, there's some pretty terrible side effects of God's goodness that cause suffering in people's lives. And to Job, at least, it's pretty obvious that God doesn't care about those. So God is good, but he's not just. And creation is not good. And this is where God needs to expand Job's worldview, to reframe Job's narrative. Because the thing is that Job is using a very limited, very human understanding of mishpat, a very human, legal understanding of justice. In the human sense, mishpat is a legal word, a courtroom word. Mishpat is the set of rules that guide the decisions of judges, that guide the work of judges. It's not, it's not law 
in, in the same sense. It's, it's deeper than law. It's, it's more profound than law. It's, it's like justice. Like we, we wouldn't say that judges enforce law. Judges enforce justice. And sometimes laws get changed because judges say that they're unjust. Justice is deeper than law. It's bigger than law. But justice is still legal in the human understanding of it. Justice in the human sense is still black and white, right and wrong. If I have been wronged, someone else has to be guilty. And this is what Job is saying. I've been wronged, and so someone has to be guilty. God has to be guilty. But this limited human understanding of justice breaks down when it comes to God. It's easy enough for us to talk about right and wrong in human governance. Paying for things is right. Stealing them is wrong. Charging a fair price is right. Price gouging is wrong. Keeping your vows is right. Breaking them is wrong. Fulfilling the responsibilities of your job description is right. Neglecting them is wrong. Those judgments are easy enough to make when you're talking about a family or a business or a town or even a country, but how do you make judgments about what is right and wrong when it comes to governing the creation? I mean, we might think we have an idea. Job obviously thinks he has an idea. We think we have an idea, right? Like light is good and darkness is bad, right? But too much light can turn forests into deserts. And many creatures depend on the darkness of night to survive. Well, maybe clear skies are good and storms are bad because storms are destructive. But too much sun can burn and the absence of rain creates famine. Maybe that's a good one. Uh, Okay, so harvest is good and famine is bad. But that breaks down too because harvest is killing plants. We wouldn't say that killing is good. And famine is the way that the earth rests. And we wouldn't say rest is bad. You see what I mean? Our regular categories of good and bad don't cut it when we apply them to governing the creation. Our human understanding of justice doesn't make sense when we apply it to God, because God is not like us. Mishpat changes meanings when we apply it to God. And that's true for a lot of things in the Hebrew Bible. There are a lot of words in in Hebrew that we translate differently if they're used to describe God versus if they're used to describe humans. Um, And God uses a bunch of them here in verse 10, which is, this is hilarious. It might, it's probably more hilarious to me, but um, these, these words, glory and splendor and honor and majesty, in the Hebrew, these are the same words that are translated as pride and arrogance and boasting and vainglory. The word that we translate as glory here uh, is actually the Hebrew word for like tall, because Hebrew is like an illiterate shepherd language, so they have a limited amount of words to work with. So here the Bible is talking about the tallness of God. 
But when the Hebrew Bible talks about the tallness of God, it's talking about his glory. But when it talks about a tall person, it's talking about pride, that this person sees themselves as tall like God. And that's pride. It's the same with honor. The Hebrew word that we translate as honor actually means heavy, like, like heaviness. Like, uh, so, so when the Hebrew, Hebrew Bible talks about the heaviness of God, it's talking about his honor, which quite you know, literally, metaphorically, translates as the, the, the weight that he throws around, right? Like God has a lot of weight to throw around. He has a lot of authority. But when the Hebrew Bible talks about a heavy person, it's talking about arrogance, that this person sees themselves as heavy like God, that this person sees themselves as having a lot of weight to throw around. And the, the point that I'm making is that there is no creature that is like God. Nothing is like God. God made everything. God made the strong things. God made the weak things. God made the tall things and the short things. He made the big things and the small things. He made the heavy things and the light things. God made it all. Every day, every star, every creature, every grain of sand, every person, there is quite literally nothing that we can take credit for. There is nothing that we can point to and say, I did that myself. I made that without any help at all. And so what God's challenge to Job is here, God challenges Job to do mishpat. Job's limited human understanding of justice means that if he is innocent, then God has to be guilty. And if God is guilty, then God has to step down and let someone else take control of things. So God says, okay, Job, if I'm guilty, then you're going to have to take over. You understand? So you need to make yourself big and tall and heavy and strong. You need to pour out fire from your face and bring down the tall guys. You need to bring them down so that you can crush the wicked and establish mishpat on the earth. You need to bring down the proud and bury them in the dust all the way down to death. And when you do that, when you can show me that you can take my place and that you can do what I do, then I will submit to your little human understanding of justice and I will admit that you're right and that I'm wrong, that you can declare yourself innocent and that I am guilty. If that's what you need, then that's fine. But if that's going to happen, then I need you to step up and take over the universe for me. And just to give Job a taste of what that's going to mean, God introduces Job to just, just two of his creatures, just two of them. Two of the subjects that Job will have to rule over if Job becomes the Lord of all. The behemoth and the leviathan. The king of the land and the king of the sea. If Job can control these two, then God will submit to Job's justice and declare himself guilty. If Job can control these two, then God will submit to his understanding of justice. That's it. It's like a job interview for Job. 
Just show me that you can do these two little things, and I'll hand over the company to you. Just these two simple tasks, and you get to be CEO of the universe, O blameless and upright one. Domesticate the behemoth, the super ox, the king of the beasts. In the raging floods of the Jordan River, he stands at peace, and the mountains bring him his food. He's the number one of all my animals, but surely he's no match for you. Put a ring in his nose and hitch your wagon to him like any other farm animal. Hunt down the Leviathan, the sea monster, the ancient chaos serpent who lives beyond the edge of the map. Whence be dragons. When he gets into one of his moods, he churns up the very depths of the sea. A single look from his eyes makes even a strong man flee in terror. But he probably doesn't scare you, Job. Get in your boat and bring him to shore with your net and your harpoon. Put him in a cage in your living room as a pet for your daughters. Do that, and I'll hand over the control panel of the universe to you, Job. Show me that you can handle these two little things that I've made. Just these two. And I'll let you decide how to run the universe. To the early church, the symbolism of the behemoth and the Leviathan uh, was pretty clear to them. It's right there in the book of Revelation that we read earlier. This is the beast from the earth and the beast from the sea, whose purpose is to lead people away from God into wickedness. These are the servants of the dragon, of the devil, of Satan, who is also a creation of God over whom God rules. And this goes to show just how complex this issue of God's mishpat is, this issue of God's justice. Because it's not even just the plants and animals and humans that God has to judge justly. God's mishpat includes the hosts of heaven, the angels and archangels, the devil and his demons, the spiritual forces of good and evil. God rules over them all, and he has to make decisions about when to allow and when to prohibit, when to bind and when to loose, when to allow freedom and when to demand obedience. God even rules over the forces of evil and has to govern a world that includes them. God has to decide when to give space for repentance and when to set times for judgment. And these things are simply beyond us, beyond our comprehension and far beyond our ability to do. It's kind of hard to see what the point of all this is. And I wonder if maybe it's because God isn't really making a point. God isn't making an argument. God isn't giving Job like moral instruction on what to do next. It's not like we can read these divine speeches and say, okay, like here's the logical flow of God's argument. Like all the stuff that I said like is elaboration on these speeches. God doesn't argue with Job. God simply reveals himself. God simply reveals himself 
to Job. And he reveals himself to Job in the bigness and the tallness and the heaviness of creation. All these things that he has made over which God governs and judges as Lord of all. This is how God reveals himself to Job. God isn't making an argument. He isn't giving Job instructions. He is just broadening Job's gaze. Job's courtroom was too small to hold God. And when God showed up, it got smashed. And what God is doing here in these speeches is not to tear Job down. God is giving Job the materials that he needs to build a new courtroom. God is helping Job measure out a foundation for a new perspective on the world that takes into account God's governance of all of creation. Because this is the reality. Job has built his argument from a human point of view. His whole world was his family, his community, his place in society, his own tallness and heaviness in his little human community, in his little corner of the world. And God says, my mishpat isn't about your little corner of human civilization. My mishpat is about all of creation. So let me reframe your narrative a little bit here, Job. Let me help you draw up blueprints for a bigger courthouse. Let me give you the materials that you need to help you see that my governance of the universe is just. Even if my governance of your life might not feel like that. Let me widen your gaze so that you can see beyond your suffering, so that you can see me. Then you will have what you need to build a bigger courtroom, a bigger courtroom. Let me help you build new meaning in life. Let me carry these beams and lift them up for you so that you can nail them together into a bigger sense of meaning. God's speeches to Job here aren't an argument. They aren't instructions. They are a revelation. And so we see that, God, that Job's own reconstruction of his, his own self doesn't begin with obedience. It begins with contemplation. God invites Job to see him, to see him in the bigger picture of creation. God invites Job to see him in the bigger story of the redemption of all things. God invites Job to see his vision of what Mishpat looks like for all of creation. 
God invites Job to experience the kingdom of God. Because that's what God wants Job to respond to. And that response is what we're going to look at next time. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said, Oh, Lord our God, in the bigness and the tallness and the heaviness of your creation, we see you revealed. Lord, when we see how big the domain of your governance is, and how small we are in it. We are dumbfounded. Like Job, we are struck silent. And we cannot answer you. But we thank you. Oh, Lord, our God, that you do not abandon us there. That you don't abandon Job there. But instead, you give us what we need to be able to build a bigger meaning out of our lives. That you give us what we need to begin to capture uh, a sense, a glimpse, uh, a whiff of what justice looks like for all the earth. We thank you that justice is bigger than just us. That your plan includes all of creation. And so if we know that there's no way that you will look us over because every living thing on earth is the subject of your care. And Lord, we thank you that you yourself bear the weight of the burden that you yourself carry the wood that we need to use to build our bigger courthouse. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray.